Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Friday edition of Seven Investing Now. If, if I sound excited, it's because I am excited. We've got a ton of stuff on this show. We're going to talk Disney earnings. We are going to take your questions. We're going to talk about the biggest company you've probably never heard of. We're going to talk the MIT conference. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program. I'm being joined today by Simon Erickson and Matt Cochran. I'm going to start with Simon first. We are two days away from Valentine's Day, and I hope my wife isn't watching. There's no chance she's watching, but we're in the same house. She could hear it. I've made no plans. I have a card and a goofy card, and I guess I'm going to go walk to Target later and try to come up with a gift card or something. But Simon, have you done anything for Valentine's Day, or is it just this shapeless void we're all living in that it doesn't matter? No, it's it's the heart-shaped pizza we get from Pizza Hut every year. That's our big event for Valentine's Day. Completely serious. That's our that's our go-to. Wow, that that would be um, a former colleague of ours, a friend of ours, Mr. Jim Gillies. Him and his wife have a tradition on Valentine's Day that they do the least romantic thing possible. And my favorite story ever is one year his wife took him to Hulk Hogan's restaurant, which I agree would be the least romantic thing ever. Matt, if I got my wife a Pizza Hut pizza, I would be spending a very lonely Valentine's Day. Are you are you doing anything special? No, we're not really a big uh, Valentine's Day couple. Uh, thankfully, my wife is actually more frugal than I am, so we're we're uh, kind of avoid the crowds so, like this weekend and just kind of stay at home. And with four kids, it's kind of just business as usual for us. <laughs> We, we certainly won't go out. It's a pandemic. I'm sure we'll get nicer than usual takeout, or maybe I'll cook something nicer than usual. But normally we would sort of, we're practical too. We'd go the gift card route. I'd be like, oh, like I know my wife needs some work clothes. So how about a Macy's gift card? Now, nobody needs anything except t-shirts and sweatpants. Like it's, I've worn, like I have six of these. I've worn one of this shirt four days a week for like nine months now, or I haven't been here that long, but five months now. Like it is it is a bizarre Valentine's Day. You can't do anything all that romantic. I guess you could have a secluded dinner, but we're going to talk the least romantic place on earth, Walt Disney World in the next. I know people get married there, but that never made any sense to me. But we're going to talk Disney earnings. Before we do that, um, Simon, Disney earnings were, in my opinion, spectacular. They turned a surprise profit. They showed incredible numbers on Disney+. Plus. Matt Cochran's going to have those numbers in a second. But what happened with their stock and this tells you everything you need to know about short-term investing. Underwhelming, right? I mean, like there's a great, a lot of potential with this company. We're going to talk about several of the numbers and several of the current performance. I'm really excited about some stuff that I think is not being factored into the market right now in the valuation. But again, uh, market doesn't always behave completely rationally. We see a lot of things we like. Stock price, pretty underwhelming to me. Nobody could look at these numbers and not be happy about them. Stock was up in after hours trading and it's down about a percent last I looked. Now, I only point this out because it's meaningless. Good companies after a good report might go down because some random meaningless analyst said, oh, like I thought it was going to be 100 million subscribers. It means nothing. That's why we're going to dig into the long-term fundamentals. That's what being a long-term investor is. It's tuning out the short-term noise. I'm a Disney shareholder. Matt's a Disney shareholder. Simon, you might be a Disney shareholder. I, I don't know. He Absolutely. is. Nothing changes based on a single earnings report other than this report validates the thesis we've been talking about all along. Matt Cochran, let's dig into some of the top line numbers. Uh, yeah. So actually, like you, you kind of stole my thunder, but they they earned uh, <laughs> uh, earning you know earnings per share uh, adjusted earnings per share was thirty two cents, and they were expected to to lose money. Uh, on the bottom line, but then they did turn a profit this quarter, even with a lot of theme parks closed and things like that. Revenue, uh, they turned in $16.25 billion. They were only expected to clear $15.9 billion, so a slight beat on the top line. Uh, but like, you know, the star of the show, Dan, really is Disney Plus still. You know, now they have 95 million paid subscribers. I think that's what, you know, is uh, right now, that's the big driver for Disney. And, and as a company, they have 126 million streaming subscribers. They have about 12.5 million at ESPN Plus, which in my opinion is a collection of garbage. I have it and I never ever use it except for the, the insider text content on ESPN.com. So let's talk about that 95 million numbers. They added 20 million plus customers, but their average revenue per user went down. Why did that happen? Because they've expanded in India. It's tied to another streaming product. They have in India, Hotstar, and, and just the pricing is a little bit lower. But Matt, almost 100 million customers for Disney Plus, 
How stunning is this? Like, I, I thought they'd add three or four million. I, they don't have a, you know, WandaVision's a nice show, but these are C-list Avengers. This is not another season of Mandalorian. Are you blown away by this? Uh, yeah. That being said, I mean, since Disney Plus was released, I, I think they just continue to raise that bar about what to expect from the streaming service. Now, like, I think Dan and I, you know, we, we've talked about this, Dan, in the past, and, uh, like, we expected like this would be what would happen eventually they're just doing it quicker than what we thought and and the slate of releases on disney plus it the, what's coming down the pipe uh they're not going to be losing subscribers anytime soon i don't think uh you have a, they're going to have a cadence of star wars shows and marvel shows and uh and movies that are just going to like they're, they're just always going to be something on there for the fans of these franchises these very popular franchises uh to one of you we're going to take your questions. I see some piling up in the queue. Uh, so we will get to those towards the end of the segment. Simon Erickson, so you have a family. Do you have Disney Plus yet? We do. We are huge fans. I, I'm being as vague as I can because I'm not sure how much you publicly disclose about what the makeup of your <laughs> of your family is. Not, not to be mysterious. It's just something we're supposed to ask permission on beforehand. I, 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 I've watched Frozen about 43 million times in that Disney <laughs> context. Yeah. So, so you have you have a child, uh, or are very strange, but you don't have a child. <laughs> could you imagine the scenario where you could get rid of Disney Plus? Because I can't. Like, even my 17-year-old will just watch like a season of The Simpsons when he's bored. I, I cannot see you know, any scenario where I could get rid of this. I could probably get rid of Netflix first. I think that's the key is, you know, we talk about Disney Plus and what a big deal this is. But when you look about what this means for an investor, it's a huge deal. Uh, not only the retention, like you said, Dan, nobody wants to get rid of Disney Plus. Not only the growth, the spectacular growth that it has that Matt mentioned, 95 million subscribers now. I mean, remember when we were talking about ESPN getting 90 million viewers through local cable stations, you know, and they'd get the, the affiliate payments from local cable providers. But now Disney has really cracked the way to go directly to the home. And to me, the most interesting piece is exactly what you, you two have alluded to as, as well, which is that Disney thinks that it's going to have 260 million Disney Plus subscribers by the end of 2024. And when you do the math on that, you know, $8, uh, roughly $8 a month, 12 months a year, people are staying. I mean, that's all of a sudden talking about $25 billion in top line revenue from something that just launched in the U.S. in, in November of 2019. It's, it's been less than a year and a half, basically, that Disney Plus has been out there. And so Disney as a whole, Dan, is doing what? $65 billion today-ish on the top line. I mean, this is a this is a 50% bump to the top line that we might see within three years of Disney. That's what makes me excited as a shareholder of the, of the stock. And, and that's without a price increase. So let's say they get to that number. Basically, every quarter or every, every four months, they would add a billion dollars if they raise the price by a dollar. I honestly think there is no price resistance between $6.99 and $9.99. I think the bundle at $12.99 with Hulu and ESPN Plus, those numbers are astounding. There is very little incremental cost. They make, when you factor out India, they make about $5.37 in profit. Those numbers will actually increase as they get bigger. There's not, there is some local content in some markets, but not nearly the level uh, that Netflix has to do because Disney has these timeless, iconic characters that sort of resonate globally. You know, Mickey Mouse or Frozen are stars wherever you are. Star Wars is a, an epic tale that works no matter where you are. So I, you're actually going to see that average revenue per user number tick up as they spread the cost out over more people. It does not cost a ton more to deliver the service, to create the service for 240 million people versus 80 million or 95 million. I actually think they've already exceeded their original like 2030 projections or like something crazy like that. So like these numbers keep going up and I just think it's exciting. But one thing they said during the earnings call that was really quiet is they finally use the word direct to consumer with ESPN. Well, what does that mean? ESPN Plus right now isn't ESPN. It doesn't have NFL rights. It doesn't have all the other live sports they have. And we're in a right season for the NFL. It would not shock me if that's one of the major barriers to Disney launching a standalone ESPN. The other one is, of course, the cable companies, because if you're Comcast, you don't want Disney competing against you. They've allowed them to do that on a limited basis with Sling and some other places, but there are caps for that. But the fact that they talked about it publicly, Matt, 
that to me suggests we're going to get your standalone 999 ESPN. And I think any sports fan would pay that. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're, you're not wrong. It's definitely something they're thinking about. And, and they do have to weigh it carefully with like uh, cannibalizing their, their cable bundle business that they make with ESPN. It, they're in a, they're still in that delicate time period with ESPN plus uh, where, you know, they just have to weigh the, the, the pros and cons of it. Now that, that being said, it's, it's definitely something they're exploring. And, you know, Dan, like something like uh, we were just talking about before the show, but an, another thing they have with ESPN plus, I think that can be really big is like, tie-ins with sports betting uh you know they already have partnerships with DraftKings and caesars they're working on a studio in caesars in las vegas uh you know and this is something they talked about they don't want it branded with disney or espn uh, but it's obviously something they're pursuing very heavily with partnerships and when you think about the synergies like something like an app like espn plus could bring to uh, a sports betting partner i mean you know that's it, it you know this is like a uh the Sports betting could be huge for ESPN, I think. I'm pretty excited to see the show where Goofy is giving you his stock pick, his, uh, his uh, <laughs> sports picks. Like, Goofy <laughs> says, bet on the Jets to win the Super Bowl. No, it's a huge opportunity, but let me temper that a little bit because I do think sports betting is going to be ubiquitous. Fox is a little bit farther ahead in embracing sports betting. You already see the, uh, the old regional sports networks are being branded to Bally's. Uh, you're going to see sports betting wherever you see sports. The other, the problem with that is until we get wider national legalization, it's really, really tricky, as you're seeing with DraftKings, as you're seeing with Penn National, that there's only every market you're in, you have to really do things differently. That's very expensive. And that's why the bigger companies have avoided it. I actually think you're going to see a bigger opportunity in fantasy sports and daily sports on ESPN before you see the sports betting because they're more clearly legal. You remember how quickly ESPN embraced poker when there was a poker betting uh, phase? So it is a big opportunity. But Matt, let's talk theme parks a little bit. So I have been to multiple Disney theme parks. I'm an annual pass holder here in in Florida, and it's been weird. They're at 35% capacity, but it still feels crowded because a lot of the indoor spaces are closed or limited capacity. So all the people sucked into gift shops or restaurants, they're, they're outside. That said, it's wide open and they make you wear a mask. I, I felt very safe there. The numbers were bad, Matt, but they weren't awful. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that is fair to say. And like, you know, um, they, they said like they, they were managed even with all the shutdowns and you did have a lot of shutdowns. Like Walt Disney World was open at capacity. Like you said, So same with Shanghai Disney. Disneyland was closed the entire quarter. Disneyland Paris was open in only a small bit of the quarter. Hong Kong Disneyland, they said, was open about two-thirds of the quarter. So they had all these reduced capacities and, and closings during the quarter, and yet all achieved a net incremental positive contribution for the periods during which the parks were open. So that, you know, revenue exceeded the variable costs associated with opening. And that's big. And, you know, they really just said, they just came out and said, like, vaccinations, like how fast people get vaccinations is going to be the big driver here. Um, he even said, um, uh, the CEO even said that, you know, when Dr. Fauci said earlier uh, the same day that he hopes there's vaccines for everyone who wants them by April, he said that, he said, quote, unquote, that's a game changer for, for the parks. I think you're going to see a summer park season. Matt, we've also talked about this. Here in Florida, uh, local pass holders are a massive part of the business because there's four parks, there's two water parks. If they didn't have that business, even at the height of tourism season, the parks wouldn't be all that crowded. But in California, where the parks are very physically small compared to the Florida parks, they've actually cut their annual pass holder program. Uh, do, you, do you think this is going to be an opportunity to change pricing? I'll give a quick example. I think Disney has learned that for the most part, less people paying more is a better park experience. So I've done that with like the uh, Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween, where it's a limited capacity, separate ticket event. Do you think they're going to figure out how to charge more more often? Uh, yeah, I mean, they basically just came out and all but said that they're raising ticket prices, right? I mean, he did it like he tried to skirt around that issue so much, like saying like, uh, like trying to lessen the blow as much as possible. But yeah, they're definitely like they're experimenting with dynamic pricing. So in other words, like tickets are going to be more expensive, like at certain time at more crowded times during the year, uh, than, uh, less crowded times. Uh, they said they're, they're, um, 
they're they're looking a lot at their annual pass pricing, uh, what they're doing there. And like he said, you know, we've learned a lot during the pandemic about as far as like uh, margin growth in the parks. It doesn't have to be about the number of people you get through the gates, but it can be about like how much you charge. And um, I think with that, like as much as I hate to see that as a customer with four kids who live in Florida, like um, there's no doubt like increased ticket prices, they're they're coming. They're coming. And people will pay. That's the problem. As a customer, people are going to pay it. I think they're going to use price to manage the crowd more. So people used to ask, what's the slow time? There kind of is no slow time, but they block out for most passes, not mine. I have a platinum pass because I want to go when people are traveling and that's when they block people out. I think there's going to be much a much higher cost for passes where you can go any day and a much lower cost for passes when you go on a Wednesday during a non-vacation week. They've already started to do that. They have a level of pass here that gives you access to at least one of the parks, like 300 and something days a year, meaning like on a really busy day, you can still go to Epcot. But on a less busy day, maybe you can go to the Magic Kingdom or Hollywood Studios. I think they're really going to manage crowds because I, I will tell you, it's wonderful to be at Disney right now where the lines are a third what they normally would be. Uh, you feel like in your one day, you're getting the experience of two days and that's that's better. Now, obviously those capacities can go up once they've opened more restaurants and shows. And there's a lot of things that are time eaters like parades that they're not doing right now. There's no fireworks at night. So they're putting a lot of pressure on certain things. So it does feel busier at 35%. But it wouldn't shock me if the new normal is maybe 70% and they make that up with, you know, 20% price increases and figure out how to get 10% more out of you. I don't, I think they're a little bit conscious of how bad an experience it is to go to a Walt Disney Park Christmas week and have to wait 19 hours to ride, you know, the mad, the mad tea party or whatever it is. Simon, I'm going to throw one last question to you here. As a parent, so we're going to, obviously there's a lot uh, of, of, turmoil for Disney right now. Uh, the box office doesn't exist. Do you think your long-term take your child or take your wife to the movies habits have changed? Because I think mine has. I think I'm going to be less likely to go to the movies unless it's a blockbuster. Uh, yes, I think it has. But I think that the parks comment is is quite important. I mean, I, I'd like to share the joke that Matt shared with us before the call, which is how ironic it is that Disney World is a human trap designed by a mouse I mean, we're still going to want to go to the parks. We're still going to be just fine with that side of the business. I think that, that Disney has done a good job of kind of changing how they approach the direct-to-consumer opportunity. You see them launching stuff directly through their streaming service rather than going through theaters and the traditional ways of doing things. And then the really interesting thing, like you touched on, Dan, is the sports. I mean, sports is like the real-time audience, the last remaining real-time audience. And I think that real-time advertising is going to follow that. People aren't just going to be buying pizzas from Pizza Hut during the game anymore. There's going to be a lot more people that want to tap into Disney figuring out the sports side of this. We're going to take some of your questions before we get to what we're watching. Let's uh, let's take a question from Chris Morley, which is, I'm hoping is my, my good friend and uh, long time, uh, I've known him since high school, uh, but I can't see the picture because I'm, yes, I believe, I believe that is him. I would expect that the first year post-vaccination that the service sector as a whole is going to boom. People will pay a premium just to get out. Disney will be an even bigger target destination. I fully agree with that. Matt, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, they uh, 100%. Yes. Uh, you know, they, they talked about in the call just how like in the parks, the problem they have is demand outstrips supply. They only have so much room in the parks. Dan, let me throw this to you. Is there a possibility in the next five years we see a new Disney park in the U.S.? No. Um, I, I, and let's seg this into a question we have uh, from Nick because this relates because there were plans for Universal to open a new park and they've put those plans on hold. And it is very possible that Universal takes the already announced Nintendo World that would have been part of their third theme park. They say fourth, but I don't count the water park. Um, their, their third gate in Florida. I think it's possible that that actually just becomes part of one of their existing parks. I don't think while companies are making up the massive losses, you're actually seeing a lot of projects get canceled at Disney or slowed down. They're finishing things that are already in the works. So the Tron roller coaster is going to get finished. The Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster, Ratatouille in the France Pavilion in Epcot is about to open. The Space Restaurant in Epcot will open. 
but a lot of things that they had previously announced at D23 events are on hold. So I do think another park is possible, but I think we're 10 years out. Um, and I do think it would be an Orlando area park to, to keep up with uh, what's going on. I also think it's like not crazy that they buy SeaWorld and, and just totally reuse that that property because SeaWorld is in real, real trouble. They uh, still but, have a lot of unused land in Orlando. Like they, it's they, a, th- there's definitely room for, I mean, and obviously a lot of that's going to be hotels and things like that, but there is room for, for more parks and attractions in that area with the they, land they have. They are still planning to build, and this is getting really in the weeds, so we'll get to your yeah. questions in a second, a massive shopping plaza. Right now they have Disney Springs. That's kind of upscale and nice restaurants. They're building more of a like giant plaza that has like a Target <laughs> you know, and like that that type of more practical and probably have outlets and things like that. So some of those things will happen, but I do think the timetable will slow down. Nick asks, do you think Nintendo can monetize its characters as well as Disney has, especially with its upcoming theme park? So they're opening as part of Universal Studios in Japan or have already opened. Some of the walkthroughs and the rides are awesome. They have not broken ground in Florida. I don't think Nintendo can monetize its characters well. I, I think they're, uh, Simon, jump in here if I'm wrong. I just think that those are going to be great video game characters that will translate well to a theme park. But I'm not so sure if like Super Mario, the television show, which has failed a bunch of times, is really as compelling as, as any of the IP Disney has. Yeah, does it transcend? I mean, people that grew up with Nintendo game consoles in the in their in the eighties are now you know approaching mid thirties, late thirties, and forties. I mean, do they bring their kids to go see a Super Mario Brothers movie or the Super Mario theme park? Maybe. I, I don't know yet that that transcends, but perhaps they do. I think that remains to be seen. Look, I I, I would say like I think like if done well, like something like a Zelda movie could do could do very well. Like there there are some valuable Nintendo franchises. Um, that that I think could translate to maybe not a theme park as much. I mean, you could always make a, a Super Mario Kart themed roller coaster. So I mean, no, 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 no. It, Matt, if you saw what the Super Mario Kart ride looks like, it's already built in in Japan. So there's already you know instances that you you can watch video of it. It looks like the most fun thing ever. So the yeah. upcoming theme park rides will work. I'd love to see the fourth gate at Universal Studios because I'm a pass holder and that'd be cool. I think it's more likely that they take the underused children's area of the park, which has really some outdated attractions, uh, and they put it there because I'm not sure anybody's building a new U.S. theme park. That's a massive investment. And look, Disney and Comcast have both taken some hits in terms of revenue uh, in these businesses. Sure. But like, I would say, Dan, like just, uh, we actually, Simon and I just talked to the chit chat money guys about this the other day. They're, they're very bullish on Nintendo, uh, Brett Schaefer and Ryan Henderson. And uh, you know, Nintendo just has a lot of valuable IP and I don't know if they're going to unlock that potential because they're very traditionally, they've been very guarded about letting like third parties come in and licensing that content out. But I think the possibility exists, and I think Nintendo's interesting because of that. I'm very nervous on Nintendo, because if you remember the Wii U, the Wii U could have killed them. The Switch was a massive comeback, but eventually the cycle will be over for the Switch. They are always under enormous pressure to have an an alternative video game console. So basically, most people who buy a Switch are people who also own an Xbox or a PS5. So or a PS4, depending on, on where you are in the cycle, that's a lot of pressure because they do not distribute their games aside from mobile phones, and that's even very limited. I, I do platforms. wish they had a I do wish they had a better mobile like platform, like releasing those games. However, like one of the things, uh, and if you're more interested in Nintendo, you should watch that podcast or watch it on YouTube or listen to it. But um with the chit chat money guys, it was just this week it came out. But like um what one thing they mentioned was that the switch now. They're just trying to release new iterations of the Switch, more like an iPhone type model where like, okay, it's a new iPhone model is out, but like all the stuff will work with the Switch. And it's kind of like, uh, for lack of a better term, it's kind of like it's taken, it's uh, decyclized like uh, Nintendo's like big hardware, like booms and bust cycles. Um, you know, it's taking like the cyclical nature out of Nintendo. I, I don't know, Dan. I think uh, I think Nintendo's like very interesting right now. 
I, I love the Switch. It's really fun. And it's like a Pied Piper if you bring it someplace. Obviously, right now, you can't interact with people. But my son and I used to, to bring his on cruises and set it up in the, in the game room, like where you know, people are playing cards or checkers or whatnot. And you know, kids would flock wanting to play along. So it is a really good thing. We're going to take one more question sort of on this topic. I'm going to give it to Simon because I, I really want to talk about more the technical angle here. Uh, already a shareholder. This is from JE thinking about putting a synthetic long on Disney. I don't even know what that means to get more exposure. Wish I had bought when it was under $100. Simon, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, we all wish we had bought when something was lower, (laughs) but long-term Disney is just a powerhouse. Like I, I don't even think you need to play games with, with, with how you buy it. Just steadily buy more would be my thought. Yeah, and and JE a synthetic long uh, for anyone also wondering what that means. That's that's equivalent of buying the stock without putting the capital up front. You're buying a call and selling a put concurrently. Uh, typically, you do that at the same strike price, and then if the stock goes above that price in the future, you actually exercise your your long call that you have in place. Uh, but you know this is this is a long strategy for Disney. I mean, it's exactly what you just said, Dan. If you think the stock is going to go up, it's a great long term holding. I don't personally think that, that Disney is one of those you have to play any short-term trading games with or, or deal with options because, in my opinion, this is a buy-and-hold company that finds new ways always every year to unlock value for shareholders. Disney Plus, key example of that right now. And I and think I, it doesn't it show like too, like uh, um, like it shows the power of patience. Like I think I, I first bought Disney shares in 2015 and for several years, it, it was flatlined. It didn't do anything. It was having problems with ESPN. But just another example of like great companies will always like, uh, like you know, they'll always come out with like new products like Disney Plus, new platforms and things like that. They will, they will change with the times. And, uh, you know, even now, like after all those years of flatlining, it's, it's beating the market because of what it's done in the past year. You know, it's hard to time the market, but like time in the market with great companies uh, almost always comes out better for shareholders. I'm, of course, fond of Disney because when I met Matt, he was a magical snowman. And uh, he's moved on from that. <laughs> I've actually never seen Frozen Simon, so, so I, I have actually very little idea what the storyline is there. Before we get to what we're watching, we're going to talk about the MIT conference that Simon just went to virtually. And the only $75 billion company I've never heard of, I'm guessing you've never heard of it. But before we do that... Simon, we are long-term investors. That can be tricky for people. It's it's not as exciting. That's why we try to make it a lot of fun here on this show to tell people, yeah, buy Disney and hold on to it for 20 years. Like that's that's our strategy. Like it's not, we're not buying puts and options and I don't know what any of these words are because we're making it hard. But if you join us, if you become part of the seven investing family, what's the core of our service? What are we, what are we giving people? We are. We're we're buying and holding seven stock recommendations every month. And so what we do is we have a team of advisors on 7investing. I give all of you the same question every single month, which is, what's your best idea? And we all come back together and we, we discuss those as a team and we write reports on those. And we issue reports to our subscribers to get access to see not only the names of the tickers and the companies themselves, but why we actually are considering these our highest conviction ideas. And then the really fun part, Dan, is getting to chat with subscribers behind the scenes about why we like them so much. We have subscriber calls. We can interact and ask us direct questions about that. Um, we have behind the scenes team conversations where you actually see us try to punch holes in each other's thesis. And I think that that's probably one of the differentiating factors about Seven Investing is that it's not just a, hey, here's our ideas. You read the report and then, it, and then we disappear. Uh, we're actually there continually because we think that investing is, one, a very personal thing. Everybody shouldn't be buying the exact same stocks. You, you probably have different goals that you want those to accomplish and two different risk factors. And so we try to appeal to that over time. And um, so man, we're think, having a lot of fun with this. <laughs> yeah, we are. And I, I think of it as we democratize the investing process. We've heard a lot in the past few weeks, the big guy has an advantage. And he does when it comes to high frequency trading. When it comes to being a long-term investor, he doesn't. So what are we? We're your friends who do all the homework. We, we sit there for hours. And I know that there are companies that are on my list as potential picks that I've been looking at for five, six years, that I've dug into, that I've experienced, that I've taken trips to go see what they're doing, that I've talked to the CEOs. The average person who has a job probably isn't doing that and and probably shouldn't do that because they have a job and other things. This is our job. So if you want to subscribe 
It is $17 a month or the best deal ever, $170 a year. I, I had math, guys. Uh, I have friends who do math. That's two <laughs> months free. Uh, so, so if you want to subscribe, it is seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. We appreciate so many of you asking questions. Uh, you know, Nick asks, uh, couldn't a cell phone just replace the switch? Like, yeah, that's absolutely a risk, but it's been a long time and cell phones are really good and they're still not anywhere near as good as the dedicated gaming platform and the fact that you can hook most of your switches to a big TV. We might see the whole world move to your cell phone, your gaming platform, everything is one device. We're not there yet. So there's always risk, but we appreciate the great questions. Max Lucas, I saw your question. We will get to it in the in the uh, home stretch of the show. But Simon, you went to a virtual conference. I hate virtual conferences, but you seem to have a good time. Tell us what went on at the MIT virtual conference, even what it was for. Yeah, conferences is something I've, I've loved my entire career. Actually, for four years, there was a four-year stint that for every single month, I went to a conference, if you can believe that. Racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles during those four years. But you know, this is kind of our chance, uh, in my opinion, to nerd out and really see what is what is... What's going on out there? How are these markets changing? We talk about being innovative. To, to be innovative, you have to see PhDs and postdocs and CIOs and people in, in their organizations and, and what's going on and what's changing. And so this was all about computing. You know, we hear a lot about cloud computing. We hear a lot about artificial intelligence. But this is kind of a, a real glimpse into how that entire movement is changing. And so, you know, as Everyday, everyday examples of this. I mean, when you ask Alexa a question, how is it that she can respond within a couple of seconds and know exactly what you're asking? If you're in a autopilot mode of a Tesla. <laughs> Sometimes. I, I just want to point out, Simon, that, the, that artificial intelligence and Alexa and digital assistants are awesome, but there's a lot of work to be done, which I'm guessing they covered a little bit at the conference. One of the themes, yeah, there's a lot of progress being made. But I mean, imagine where we were even just a couple of years ago and the capabilities that Alexa can do now. That's all computing going on behind the scenes because Amazon designed a custom chip to do that. Uh, Tesla, you know, if you're an autopilot of a Tesla, how do you know that the car is not going to veer into the car next to you because there's sensors that are picking that up and processing and driving the car? I mean, that's behind the scenes, a neural network they've designed. If you're a big enterprise, you're probably moving a lot of your own designed data storage uh, to the cloud now. You're probably working with Amazon or Google or Microsoft. What does that mean? And then, I mean, there's also some really fun futuristic stuff that people have been talking about, like quantum computers. Like, how do you build a quantum computer and what are the real challenges for something like that? And so going to MIT's future computer was really uh really enjoyable for me. I got to talk in person with a lot, not in person, in conversations on the phone with, with people that I would have loved to talk to in person. Uh, but it's really it's really insightful. We bring a lot of this into uh, our own recommendations of Seven Investing. It's definitely given me a lot of insight that I'm going to pull into my own pick uh, for, for the upcoming month. So Simon, one quick question here. We talk about NVIDIA a lot behind the scenes. It has been a really, really blockbuster stock. Is there still room to grow? Yeah, NVIDIA has been one of the best performers of the past decade. I mean, how many people in the world are probably saying the word NVIDIA right now in context of a, of a performing stock or, or great company? And that's because their GPUs or graphics processing units, people realized, weren't just good for rendering video for video games. They could be actually powering a lot of these neural networks that are that are doing AI workloads. Um, Companies are finding new ways to learn information and insight about the data that they have. But that requires a lot of power and a lot of processing. And NVIDIA has been the first wave of doing that through GPUs. But the insight on this one, and my takeaway, is that it's not just about GPUs anymore. There's a whole bunch of different processors. You've heard of Google's TPUs. You've heard of IPUs. You know, there's... Uh, a variety of different types of processors that are now working together to handle different parts of how programmers are programming the logic to go to different systems. And again, the goal in this is to do things you couldn't do before, but also get the power costs down because processing takes a lot of power. And this is something that's being actively looked into. And I think that's why you see a lot of the consolidation that we've seen in the chipmaker industry of this past year. Huge deals, $30, $40 billion dollars taking place because they want to be a buffet of options rather than just kind of focusing on one discrete type of unit. 
At least there's a kind of buffet that can still exist in a pandemic world. Simon, I'm going to ask you in a second about far out options, but uh, my friend Chris Morley asked a question that's going to let you promote your upcoming podcast. So let me let me read the question. Uh, super curious about what they spoke about at this conference, RE Alexa. Uh, can't speak about it, but I work for Amazon in the Alexa group. Simon, you're doing a podcast, deep dive into this conference. Is that going to come up? Uh, yes, we are. In fact, uh, I'm going to providing, be providing actually a full recap of the entire conference on Monday for subscribers. It'll be an advisor update, but it is something I'm going to share all of my notes, and this will be included in that. Uh, the, the quick flyby, the takeaway, I think, on what's being talked about in Ferencio, which is the chip that Amazon custom designed, is that it's really hard to do that. You know, you've got to do, do a lot of design work. It probably costs $40 million, maybe more than that, uh, to design this yourself. But, but Amazon found a real reason to do that. And Tesla found a real reason to do that with its own self-driving cars. But if you're not willing to put all the manpower and the time and the money into designing your own chip, um, you're, you're going to be working with other chip makers to find the best fit and maybe custom design some stuff on their R&D tab instead of your own. But I think that Amazon is still kind of considered one of those innovators in the field, Chris, uh, that a lot of people look up to because they were willing to, uh, to take the step and do something really neat. My efforts to design a seven investing chip have not gone well. I mean, I figured the potato part out, but the whole rest of it, the computing part is not going well. We're going to talk about the biggest company you've probably never heard of as soon as Simon answers one more question. Simon, what was the most far out conversation? Like the, the thing that came up with this conference, it just like blew your mind because I don't want to tip people off but there are some really smart people at MIT. <laughs> There's also a lot of adjectives before the word computing that are being thrown out there. Neuro <laughs> neuromorphic computing, you know, and, and one that keeps coming up that's far out is quantum computing. And this is something that everyone's kind of asking, you know, when is there going to be a, be a computer? What are the killer applications for this? It's kind of like we keep seeing these same kind of questions, but man, it's really neat to see the people that have devoted their life's research to a quantum computer get up there and talk about this. And the different types of, you know, ion trap quantum computers, the supercomputing quantum, quantum computers, uh, super cool, excuse me, quantum computers that are out there. Uh, the annealers that are D-wave systems that work. I mean, there's all sorts of different quantum computers, even within that same word. And so, I mean, this is something that that is going to be solving the most challenging problems that, that companies are trying to address. We're not going to be checking our email that nuts powered by a quantum computer, right? We're doing just fine with that. But if you're trying to model climate changes, if you're trying to model uh, protein structures of new drugs you're developing, there's some stuff right now that simulations are breaking the CPUs that we're working right now. And even GPUs are having trouble keeping up with some of these things. And so you really need like this super high powered quantum machine that can operate at several, several orders of magnitude faster that just traditional computers can't do. And so my, my takeaway for investors is this. Yeah, there's some really neat research. It gives some people some, some exciting things to talk about. But typically when you see innovation, it starts at the very high end of the market, which is where we are at quantum computing. And then it bleeds into the more of the mass market. And so when we start talking about things like cloud computing plus, plus, plus quantum computing in the same sentence, you might be able to get access to these if you're paying by use, you know, by minute, by hour, however often you're using these, that might not be more than five years away uh, that this starts getting to be more of a mass market adoption. And so quantum computing, I guess, to wrap all of that together, really neat technology. It seems like it's always been a pipe dream, but it's starting to get some commercial applications. And Dan, that really has my interest as an investor. Simon, let me give you a little bit of perspective here. But, but my friend Chris, who's been asking some questions here, my first use of a computer was with him. His dad had a TRS, a Radio Shack computer, and had a three-line screen. You had to hook it up to your phone, and you could dial it into bulletin boards, which were sort of like very primitive chat groups. Uh, I believe I then got a Commodore 64, and it grew from there. So we're going from computers that didn't even have images to like basically the stuff of Bond villains. Like th this is, it's not that many years. I mean, this is only 20-something years. So it is really, really exciting. Our subscribers are going to get all sorts of access to this. Of course, if you want to send Simon questions about the sh about the show, uh, 
you can send those to info at seveninvesting.com uh, because we try to answer in ways where the most people can see it. That's one of our goals with our members is, you know, to not write you an email back personally, though we will do that sometimes, really to take your question, either answer it here live on 7investing now, or if it's members only, answer it uh, in one of our advisor updates, one of our company updates. Matt, not too make you this the the, the second <laughs> fiddle here uh so you're nope. not going to talk about quantum computings and definitely at, not nobody matt, wants me to talk about quantum computing <laughs> after matt finishes we're going to take your questions some from the live queue some from twitter which is something we're trying to do every show um but matt tell us about this little 72 billion dollar company that i never heard of until we got an email about it a couple of days ago uh, sure. So Pfizer, it's actually like a very large uh, leading provider of core processing and complementary services uh, such as electronic funds transfer, payment processing, and loan processing for U.S. banks and credit unions uh, with more of a focus on the small and mid-sized banks. It operates the third largest debit card network in the U.S. outside of the MasterCard Visa duopoly, and that's growing. Um, and uh, through its merger with First Data in 2019, Pfizer now provides payment processing services for merchants. That, uh, so, so, Matt, what's the opportunity here? Is this still a growing company or is it being hurt by some of the, uh, you know, the current changes and how all of this stuff is happening? Well, it's a little bit of both. So let's just start here. Uh, it just Pfizer just reported its full year earnings uh, earlier this week, which marked its 35th straight year of double-digit EPS growth. That's pretty impressive. Um, it's, uh, you know, and in that time, it's up approximately a gazillion percent. So if you've been a shareholder for Pfizer since it went public in the late <laughs> 80s, you've done very, very well. Uh, 35 years of, uh, you know, double-digit EPS growth is almost unprecedented. Now, that being said, like, it's, uh, it's a legacy provider of a lot of these services. And in this quarter, revenue declined 5%. Uh, it grew 46% for the full year, but that's that's very wonky number because it still had its um it, its its merger with First Data, which was in 2019, extended into the first half of this year. So that's a little wonky. But EPS this quarter was up 22%. So even though revenue is declining, EPS was up, and of course the revenue was uh, severely impacted by COVID. Um, you know, but. Uh, Adjusted EPS was up 16% this quarter, uh, up 12% this year, and it's projecting revenue growth of 8 to 12% this year and adjusted earnings per share growth of about, of about the same. Matt, are they just so embedded in the merchant payment space that it's very, very hard for anyone to compete? The scale of its merchant segment is basically unmatched. It processes 40% of all in-person purchases in the U.S. That covers 80% of all U.S. zip codes and accounts for about 10% of U.S. GDP. Uh, its book of business in that industry is probably the most balanced. And there's two primary growth drivers they have inside that merchant segment, Dan, Clover and Carrot. What would you like to talk about first? Uh, go with Clover, because I don't remember what you said the other one was. <laughs> <laughs> Clover and Carrot. So Clover, it's a payment processing solution for small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, Clover's gross payment volume grew 25% to $34 billion in the quarter. That's about $135 billion analyzed, which is even more impressive because, again, of the impact from COVID. Um, you know, so this company, it continues to extend the breadth of these services to Clover merchants with solutions that enhance convenience. So, uh, for example, this quarter, they introduced invoicing capabilities that allow Clover merchants, uh, especially those in the services vertical, to uh, build and collect payments from consumers electronically. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, this would be considered a competitor to Square, and it's very similar. The reason we're talking about Fiserv is because Nicholas, one of our, our members, wrote us an email. So we hope, Nicholas, we're covering everything you asked for. Um, Matt, now what about Carrot? Uh, first of all, I would have called it Crimson. If you're going to have Clover, the other one should be Crimson. But that said, <laughs> they're going with Carrot. What's that business look like? So Clover, that's the new brand for its global e-commerce and omni-commerce platform. It's uh, you know, it's a culmination of three years of investment by Pfizer. It when it, it replatformed its multi-currency and multi-country technology. And so, but while the carrot name is new, its market presence is not. Um, you know, Clover is already used by a number of leading brands for omni-channel commerce. That includes things like Starbucks and Dunkin'. Uh, this quarter, it acquired the digital business for Overstock.com and Wingstop in North America. And um, global e-commerce transactions were up 25% this quarter. 
Uh, so again, it's it's growing. Uh, you know, it saw omni-channel transactions such as uh, like order ahead and pick up in the store grow more than 125% year over year. Um, so it's 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 winning market share, and it's uh, it right now it has a. Uh, it has 46, uh, this quarter captured 46 new enterprise level e-commerce climates in the fourth quarter. So it, it, it's, it's it's doing very well. It's a very capable omni-channel platform. Again, you have things like Starbucks and Dunkin' using it. Like you think about like, you know, the payments behind their apps. It's very robust, uh, you know, and it, so Carrot is again, one of these growing segments within its merchant segments business that is just doing very well. So Matt, is the big takeaway here that despite that there's, a lot of increased competition. Fiserv is still doing well and the prospects look good. Well, Dan, at the end of the day, and, and you know this from your retail experience, but like once you have a payment processing service as a merchant, you're not switching switching to a new uh, provider of those services. It's not like a, a decision you make lightly. So even if there's something a little bit better um, uh, that's out there, like it's very hard to switch. And like, especially if it works and Pfizer's solutions work, uh, its valuation is very reasonable based on its like uh, EPS projections for this coming year. It's at a PE ratio of uh, of about 20. Uh, so, you know, in today's market, that's, that's almost, you know, that's almost downright deep value. Um, so, you know, this is a company, it's a legacy company for sure. And there's a lot of competition. Uh, I don't want to like undermine that at all. Um, and I would be like, but over the medium term, the next couple of years, I, I think this is, this is not a bad, this is not a bad company at all. As far as being a shareholder goes over the longer term, like if you're looking 10 years out, I, I have more doubts, but like, this is a good company at a decent valuation right now. Thank you, Matt. Simon Erickson, I know you have a meeting at 12.50, so I'm going to quickly field one more question, and then I'd like you to take Max Lucas's question on SPACs. That was way in the beginning of the time. So I'm going to very quickly respond to one of our members, and I apologize, I didn't copy the name over. Ask me about the prospects for Discovery Plus as a streaming service. And I'll say I am really bullish on Discovery Plus. I have not dug into the financials of Discovery as a business, but I do think they have the 90-day universe, which sounds bizarre, but 90-day fiance is just all these spinoff shows. <laughs> they also have the food network, the cooking network. What I don't like, they, they have the Magnolia network, which you know, uh, with Chip and Joanna Gaines have a massive following. I do think a lot of people are gonna pay $4.99 for this service. They don't have the rights to show the linear networks. And I do sort of like just having those channels on in the background. I think they'll get there eventually. And this is one of the few groups of content I would not be surprised if Discovery was an acquisition target because it is a mover. And if I was somebody like NBC or, or even Time Warner with HBO that had these sort of struggling mid-level services, Discovery Plus is a difference maker. So I am bullish, but I haven't really looked at the business and what they're spending and how much money they're paying Chip and Joanna Gaines, which is probably a lot. Simon, would you like to take Max Lucas's question on SPACs? Yes, and let me see if, uh, okay, well, thank you, Sam. So what is the best way to find information on a company coming public via SPAC? Uh, are there SEC filings once the company is announced? Yes, okay, great question, Max. Thanks for asking this one. Uh, yes, there are. All SPACs, uh, just like every other publicly traded company, has to have a prospectus, which is where you can find a lot of the information, especially for SPACs, about the offering itself. A SPAC is a little different than an IPO because companies that are coming public through a special purpose acquisition corporation uh, are actually issuing units that are upfront putting a piggy bank of money to work. And then they later merge with an existing privately held company. And so in the SPACs prospectus, you'll typically see a number of units that is being offered for a total amount. Typically they're around $10 per unit. And then over time, the sponsor of that SPAC has a set amount of time, typically two years, to actually go out and find a target company they're going to acquire. They're going to merge the two of those together. And then that will be one single publicly traded company with a different ticker going forward. But yes, there's plenty of SEC documentation to answer your question, Max. I actually think it's a little bit thin. I, and you, you know my feeling, Simon, that I'm not a big investor in SPACs or IPOs unless I truly believe in the management. Because I do think a lot of what you're looking at is less robust than an S1. And even that's not that great. That's a very polished, shiny. I like to see a couple of quarters of earnings. Simon, we are going to let you go. We're not kicking you out. You have a meeting. You're, to be fair, <laughs> Simon's the boss. You can kick us out. Uh, but you have a meeting. We will see you at two o'clock when we have a meeting. Um, hey, before I do go, though, I, I would like to say a, a huge thank you for everyone watching this show. Also, a huge thank you to you, Dan Klein. I see this is our 50th 
seven investing now episode. So that's kind of a landmark. Uh, congratulations, Dan, on an incredible live stream. This well, is a great way to meet people and ask, have them ask questions on their terms and put us on the spot with answers. I'm really enjoying it. And we saw how it works. So, you know, my childhood friend watched the show and I, and I really appreciate when anyone who knows me watches. Um, and then during the show became a subscriber because I think we showed the depth and breadth of what we can do and how we're bringing the ability to long-term invest to anyone. If you're putting $20 a month in your account, we can talk to you about fractional shares and how to buy good companies and how to hold them. And we are passionate about this and knowledgeable and excited. Simon, go to your meeting. We could talk about this forever. I really appreciate <laughs> that. We are also, of course, coming up on an anniversary as a company. And we're going to celebrate that at some point uh, next month with a massive show with, uh, with all of us, with everybody on the team, where we're going to sort of look back at the year. We're going to, I don't know, there'll be champagne, there'll be cake. That's going to be a lot of individual champagne. <laughs> Vir virtual cakes. champagne, Zoom well, champagne. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, all have, we'll all have to buy our own. But with, with, with that- I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And you know, like, like Dan says, our one-year anniversary is coming up on, on March 1st. So thank you, everyone, for the support of 7investing so far. So Matt, you and I are going to stick around for a few minutes. Take a few more questions. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Sorab, Sorab Aurora wrote, how do you compare existing fintech players like PayPal with new listed players like Payoneer, Agen? Which are better businesses and which presents better investing opportunity? And then Ship of Fools GD said, what was most impressive about Adye, uh, that, that's Adyen's, uh, results? And he also wants to know thoughts on Payoneer. Matt, I've never heard of Payoneer before, but... Can I just hope that their their product is called Payonnaise? Like I'm really, really <laughs> hoping that. No, it's actually uh, it's coming public via a, a, a SPAC, uh, Dan. So like what Simon was just talking about. Like so, I'm not super familiar with this business model. It's it's kind of like the, a digital wallet that's used used in certain industries more than others. Like what I would say. Um, about Payoneer is like, uh, it, you know, its revenue top line growth is projected to be 25% and PayPal's, you know, five-year revenue projection growth is supposed to be 20%. And Payoneer is coming off a much smaller base. You know, network effects are at play in the payments business where like each user brings like more value for the overall network. So like, for instance, like every user of PayPal, which now has almost, it's approaching 400 million active accounts on PayPal. Each additional user now, that's someone else that everybody can send money through, through P2P, like person-to-person -person payments. It's uh, It makes it more attractive for more merchants to accept PayPal as a method of payment. So if PayPal is growing at 20% and Payoneer with a much, much smaller base is only going to project it to grow at 25%, like uh, to me, I'd just much rather like stick with a company like PayPal. Now, as far as Adyen, Okay, we were just talking about Pfizer and it being a legacy payments company and like there's disruptors coming into the space. Adyen is a perfect example of the disruptor coming into the space. Um, you know, it's it's what was impressive about its most recent earnings growth was not only its top line growth, but also its projections for its long-term margins. Uh, like I think that caught maybe everyone a little off guard that it's going to be that they think and probably will be able to achieve these margins over the long term. Uh, you know, it's just a very overall impressive company. Uh, you, Adian strategy is very different than almost any other company in the payments business. I'm not going to try to get too much into the weeds, but there's like some legacy players that have gotten very large through acquisitions. And they kind of like cobbled together all these different pieces and it, it works. But Adian has intentionally uh, not made any acquisitions. It wants to build a platform from the ground up. Its name literally means to start over or to build again, uh, something like that. And uh, like when they did it, they were very intentional. They 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 uh, they they missed out on a lot of growth opportunities uh, that a lot of companies could get in uh, by acquiring companies by just slowly building up. And right now, it has a very elegant solution. Addy is a very impressive company. However, again, the valuations reflect that. Pfizer's valuation we talked about is about a, like a 20 uh, PE ratio uh, based on its e EPS projections for this coming year. And adding it's about a 20 price to sales ratio, you know, uh, it's so the valuations reflect their, their, their positions in the industry. We're going to take two more questions quickly. Um, that being said, uh, Ravi Shah, it is Payoneer, P-A-Y-O-N-E-E-R. I don't know off the top of my head when, when they're going public. I also don't think it matters. If they're a good company in the long term, 
buy it six months from now after you've seen a couple of quarterly earnings. We've seen prices get very wacky when companies debut. There's a lot of fear of missing out. You're often better off just waiting. Roman Michael, uh, why don't you hit us up with that one on an organogram on uh, Twitter? Because I know I am working on a guest, whether it's a podcast or a show, where we're going to do a cannabis one. I haven't looked at an organogram in a while, so I don't feel super confident talking about it. But Matt, Chowzam says, hey, Dan, always enjoy your work. Nobody facilitates the discussion better. Thank you. Uh, my question is about when to add to a position. I've added to my winners forever, but its gut feels not systematic. Add when stock price is 50%, after it doubles, when Simon Matter you say so. So here's how I do it. And Matt, you can, I add to positions when I don't have a new idea I want to buy. So if there's money sitting in my account and I'm not super excited about something new, uh, or I've already made my new purchase for the month based on you know whatever I've picked at, at Seven Investing, that's when I say, okay, what's my favorite thing that I own? I'll throw a little bit more money there. It's not systematic at all. Do you have a better program than that? Uh, no, it, it, so much of it depends on the co the company. You know, I, I do believe in adding to your windows winners. Uh, like Peter Lynch said, like uh, cut your weeds and uh, grow your flowers. You know, uh, don't do the opposite of that. Um, I, what, I, I personally just like to add a little over time. Like I start positions kind of small and as my conviction grows and as I learn more about the company and as the thesis that I believe play would play out does start to play out. Like I, I just add almost, I almost like add on a, on a time basis than rather anything else. Like, so every year I like to add to like great companies. We're talking about Disney. It's a company I like to add to a little bit every year, you know, other companies that like fit that bill to me. That's just a great a company that I believe is a forever hold stock, I'd like to add to it, you know, a little bit at a time. I also try to be a little bit opportunistic. If you see a great company that like some dumb thing came out, like remember a few years ago when Chipotle said they might run out of guacamole at a couple of locations because of supply and the stock went down a whole bunch, nothing fundamentally changed about their business because of that. And it was actually in the section of your annual report where you have to like lay out like, well, our CEO might be eaten by a dragon. Like there could be an end of all meat. Like it really was overplayed. So that was an opportunity for people to buy. We're going to take one more question, and then we're going to wrap up the show. Sam Bailey, we're going to skip the finisher. There's a little bit of a problem with the graphic there. I'd rather get this one more question in. Uh, this is from Han, and he wrote, uh, and he wrote to uh, info at seveninvesting.com. With the current broad market heading higher and making new highs, a lot of the companies seem to be overvalued by traditional met metrics. Do you think that there's a fundamental shift in terms of how investors are evaluating a company who don't mind paying a higher premium as long as the growth of the company is intact? Uh, would like to get your advice on how to better position ourselves in this fast-moving market. Matt, I'll let you have the first word here. Well, that's we could do whole shows on that topic. Uh, about valuation of companies, every company, I, I would say this, like, don't, don't put too much stock into traditional uh, valuation metrics. Um, I believe a lot of, almost all the time you have to go a little bit deeper than that. And it's a good shortcut to kind of like underlining the valuation, but like, there's a lot more at play than just traditional financial metrics. So for instance, just think like a lot of SaaS companies, like right now, like the valuations might look ridiculous. And for some of them, they probably are. However, given their margins and however, uh, given their growth rates, like, you know, I, I think a lot of them are, are not only like reasonable, um, you know, they, I don't want to say cheap, but you know, I don't think they're as expensive as they are when you first look at them. So I do it sort of organically. I look at a company and I go, what is the growth path? Could this company get a hundred times bigger? Could it get to, you know, we talked Disney earlier and I would argue that Disney plus will get three or four times bigger and it probably can double in price over the next decade without doubling in cost. So I, that to me is more the story of, you know, one of the ones people talk about a lot is Zoom. Like Zoom had a ton of growth due to the pandemic. And I do think there might be a post-pandemic period where growth is very sluggish as the market sort of catches up to where it is now. But so that's a company that I'd like to see some other area of growth for them besides just adding video conferencing customers. I don't know what that would look like. I don't think it's hardware. So there's no one answer to this. And I do think though, I don't place a lot of stock in traditional metrics. Matt, we've done it. 
We've done an hour. And I, I keep teasing people. We are doing this for an hour for a reason. There is something big and exciting coming up in the world of Seven Investing Now. If people want to get a hold of us, uh, they can either drive to Florida and look for us out on the street, or <laughs> they can email info at seveninvesting.com. That, uh, that goes to all of us. Uh, Steve Symington is usually the one fielding it. Uh, that's where you ask uh, questions you'd love us to field in the show, questions you'd love us to take on members calls. If you have a technical question about subscribing or how things work, that can work there. And if you have a public question or just want to interact with us, we are at 7investing on Twitter. We are very, very active on Twitter. But that brings us to the end of the Friday show. From Matt Cochran, I am Dan Klein. We thank so many of you for watching. And we will see you Monday. Special show, even though it is a market holiday. Bye. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.